Hello, I'm Danny Aiken, president of Southeastern Seminary. This podcast is a variety of audio resources from around Southeastern. To learn more about Southeastern, visit scbts.edu. I appreciate that. Listen, uh, if you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn to 1 Samuel chapter 1. That's where we're going to be uh, today. Um, as you turn there, uh, I need to give honor where honor is due. You can't step into someone else's house and not say thank you. So I want to say thank you to, to Southeastern for allowing this young preacher to be able to come and, and open up God's word. Uh, as funny, earlier this year, uh, I got an email that said, hey, uh, Dr. Aiken wants you to come preach uh, at chapel. And I looked at the email and I sent it to a couple of people. I was like, are you talking about me? Is he sure about that? But uh, sure enough, yeah, it was me. And uh, here we are. Um, and so as I was preparing this, actually, um, you know, I was kind of walking through some things and uh, felt led to, to teach on something specifically. But then uh, in light of different things that were been going on inside the church just a, a couple weeks ago, and, and uh, Brother Locke just uh, mentioned that as well, I felt needed to, that I needed to take a, a left turn, if you will. And I'm going to preach on something that I've preached on at our church earlier this year that I feel like is going to be relevant to us who are stepping into ministry, continue to be used in the way that God wants us to be used, and that's the issue of hopelessness. See, a couple months ago, I decided to, to, to dig in on Twitter, right, and I saw someone tweet something that said, uh, today is the worst, hashtag hopeless, right? And me being the good millennial that I am, I decided to click on that hashtag and, and kind of, you know, see what other people are saying, and I wanted to share a couple of things that I saw. She'll ask me what I want, but then decide for me anyway. Hashtag hopeless, right? Trying to tidy up with a one-year-old is like trying to tidy up during a tornado. Hashtag hopeless. Parents are like, yep, that will preach, right? Here's one. How is it impossible that I fail so bad at adulting? I simply can't keep up with my chapstick. Hashtag adulting is hard. Hashtag hopeless. And we can all relate to that, right? I think I find a new chapstick literally every week. And these made me laugh, but as I was reading it, it made me realize and wonder if I were to take a poll in this room, what would our stories of hashtag hopeless be? You see, I know that it would range to something as minor as as losing or not finding uh, chapstick to as serious as losing or not finding a job. Something as small as relationship goals to as big as why in the world is my relationship on the rocks? Something as small as returning a child's toy back to a shelf to something as big as returning to the same sin that you promised God that you wouldn't look at anymore. See, this feeling of hopelessness, it can drive us to areas in our lives where we thought that we would never be. Here's what I want us to do here in this moment, right? And for for sake of time, we're going to make it quick. But if you're taking notes or you're writing something down, I want you to write out your own hashtag hopeless moment. Seriously, do it. What is something in your life that as you think about for yourself that kind of leads you to this area of hopelessness? I want you to write that down because we're going to talk about it in just a second. As you do that, let me ask you another question. What do you do in those moments? What happens in those moments of, of hopelessness? How does it affect you? What does it do in your life? Are you depressed? Are you angry? Are you frustrated with God? Where does hopelessness lead you? Today in the book of 1 Samuel, we're going to look at a woman by the name of Hannah who is in the middle of her own hashtag hopeless moment. 
And my hope today is that we will see in Hannah's story that in the midst of our hopelessness, that God still remembers us. Before we do that, let me pray and ask God to bless our time this morning. Father, you are good. We so desperately need you. We need your grace. And Father, I need you right now. Father, I pray that you would move Derek Delane out of the way, Father, and I pray that you would step in, that these would be your words, that it would speak to your people, and it would transform us in such a way that we would remember that you remember us. God, we need you. We love you. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, in 1 Samuel chapter 1, starting at verse 1, it says this. There was a certain man of Ramathaim Zophim of the hill country of Ephraim, whose name was Elkanah, the son of Jerohim, son of Elihu, son of Tohu, son of Zoph, and Ephrathite. You should have heard me trying to learn these names in preparation for this. Talk about hopeless. I have not mastered divinity yet. Let's keep on going. He, Elkanah, had two wives. The name of the one was Hannah and the name of the other, Peninnah. And Peninnah had children, but Hannah had no children. Now this man used to go up year by year from his city to worship and to sacrifice to the Lord of hosts at Shiloh, where the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were priests of the Lord. On the day when Elkanah sacrificed, he would give portions to Peninnah, his wife, and to all her sons and daughters. But to Hannah, he gave a double portion because he loved her, though the Lord had closed her womb. And her rival used to provoke her grievously to irritate her because the Lord had closed her womb. So it went on year by year. As often as she went up to the house of the Lord, she used to provoke her. Therefore, Hannah wept and would not eat. And Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Hannah, why do you weep? And why do you not eat? And why is your heart sad? Am I not more to you than ten sons? Guys, to help us get a better understanding of the story, we need to make a couple of observations. The first thing that we see is that Hannah was a woman without hope. We see this in the fact that she was a woman who could not have children. Now, if we're honest, there aren't many women in our culture who would desire a life without children, right? However, in this particular culture, children were a very big deal. See, because ancient Middle East was an agrarian culture, the, the more children you had, especially sons, meant the more income that you were able to generate for you and your family. That would mean that as you retired in, in old age, you had someone that was going to care for you, right? And you didn't have to pay out extra money. For Hannah, living in a culture like this, it would mean that people would look at her and think, wow, that's sad. A woman who can't live up to her, her purpose here in life. Now, forgive me for how that may come across, but again, this was the culture during this time here. And Hannah felt like a cultural failure. And honestly, a lot of women today still feel this way. Our society isn't agrarian, but I know countless women who feel like others look down on them unless they have kids. It may not be coming from societal pressures. It may be your own desires. I think of women in my church struggling to get pregnant who, for whatever reason, can't. Some of you who may be married may be in that category as well. And it seems like every other woman around you is having kids and living this full, rich life while you're feeling empty. For many people in here today, you feel hopeless in the same way that Hannah does in this story. You see, the story is for all of us, but it's especially for you. The second observation that we see to understand this story was the fact that Hannah had to share her love and affections with a husband who could not meet her needs with another woman who was relentless in her persecution towards her. Now, before I go any further, I feel like it should be stated that the Bible isn't. Obviously, saying polygamy is okay. Just think back at the Garden of Eden, right? God created one man, one woman to be in relationship for life. 
When you see polygamy in the Bible, typically we see how it paints a picture of us, of, of the hurt and pain that it could cause in relationships, okay? Major example, this husband played favorites. Now, we can assume he loved Hannah more because he saw what she was going through, right? But it doesn't say that specifically. What it does say is that he loved her. And how does he show that love? By giving her extra food. Now, to me, that is one of the greatest ways to show me love, right? <laughs> I remember when I was growing up, and it was me and my grandmother and my, my older sister, and we always used to get the, the KFC chicken box on Sunday after church, right? And Granny would always give me the, the drumstick, and she would give my, my sister the large piece of chicken, right? Now, I, that would always frustrate me, but I remember a time, it was right around time, I guess I was like 13 or, or 14 years old, my grandmother decided to give me the big piece of chicken. And I don't know if it's because she saw my mustache coming in or could smell my B.O., but there in that moment, you couldn't tell me nothing, right? Like I thought I had made it. That was love. Granny showed me love by giving me the extra piece of chicken. For Hannah, though, this was probably salt in the wound. She didn't feel the compassion. She felt it as, as, as pity, and that pity only increased her shame. We can place ourselves in the room, right? We can hear her thoughts. He's treating me special because I can't have kids. He's trying to encourage me, but it's still a reminder of my lack of worth. And then my man tells her something that in his mind probably sound great, but in reality was super hurtful. What's he say? Am I not more to you than ten sons? I read this, I'm like, boy, if you don't sit down, no. That's not helpful, right? <laughs> what he was trying to provide for her was not enough. He could not fix her body that she could have children. That was her desire, not food, not special treatment. And on top of that, insert the other wife. This woman who she had to be compared with would throw it in her face that she had no children. You see, this woman, Penina, had children. It doesn't say how many, but it does say sons and daughters plural, so we can assume it was enough to remind Hannah she wasn't on her level. Now, here's what's so interesting about how the writer describes the torment thrown at Hannah from, from Peninnah in verse 6. See, the, the Hebrew word used here, provoke, it literally means to thunder or to roar like a storm. This is the type of language that would be used to describe being caught in a hurricane. In fact, Tim Keller notes in a sermon on this very same passage that this is the only place in the Bible that the word is used to describe anything other than an actual storm. And this storm was continual for Hannah. She had to live with this woman and her children. She was around the cries of the babies. She could smell the dirty diapers. She was around when there was people fighting over toys and things like that. And she heard it all. And Penina would remind her of this that she didn't have. Now, again, it doesn't say it, but we can imagine and place ourselves in a situation, right? Penina talking to Hannah. Hey, hey, Hannah, why don't you be a sweetie and, you know, hold this baby while I cook, I cook dinner for us, you know, since you don't have a kid at all, right? Oh, give me that baby back. You don't, you don't know how to burp it right. You see, that's why the Lord ain't give you any kids to begin with, right? We can see the, the level of torment. We can assume the level of torment. Hannah was a woman without hope. Does her story sound familiar to you? For some of you right here, her story of infertility, it rings loudly in the halls of your heart. You have been there when someone was trying to cheer you up but ends up saying the wrong things. And all it does is make you just feel isolated. 
You have someone in your life who may or may not be intentionally rubbing in your face through their social media or their conversations with you that they have children, and yet you don't and you can't. And some of you may not be able to relate with Hannah here from an infertility point of view, but I can assure you, you have your own penances in your own life. If we begin to link Hannah's pain with her inability to have children, it shows us that no matter who we are, we're going to latch on to something that says this gives me my meaning, that this gives me my worth. This is what gives my life value. And for Hannah, this played out in wanting to have children. For us in this room, we need to ask ourselves, where's the penitent in our life that is saying to us, unless we have this, we're worthless. What is it? Maybe it's, it's beauty. You need the compliments and a look, so you spend extra money to, to, to stay on top of the specific trends. Maybe it's financial freedom. You work extra hard to be able to maintain a, a certain lifestyle that if you were to drop a different tax bracket, your life would be in complete shambles. Maybe it's relationships because you've passed the age that most of your friends have gotten married because you're in the bridal party and not the bride or the groom. Maybe for many of you in here, it's ministry goals. You desire to have a successful ministry and you see yourself as the next great missionary or pastor or insert whatever it is. I don't know what it may be for you, but I do know that there's a penina in your life or tornado in your soul because there's a penina saying you are nobody unless you have these things. Does this sound familiar to you? Does this speak to what you wrote down, your hashtag hopeless moment? If it does, we have to ask ourselves, what do we do with it? Let's keep reading in verse 9. After they had eaten and drunk in Shiloh, Hannah rose. Now Eli the priest was sitting on the seat beside the doorpost of the temple of the Lord. Let's stop real quick. The second observation that we see is that Hannah was a woman with a decision to make. It's a small shift, and unless you're really paying attention, you can read right over it. It's in verse 9. What does it say? Hannah rose. We can read that and simply think, well, she was done at the table. She wasn't eating anyway, so she simply just got up to go into a different room. But what we need to understand is that that word rose in the Hebrew communicates this decisive action. Hannah stood to make a choice. And what was that choice? Let's keep reading in verse 10. She was deeply distressed and prayed to the Lord and wept bitterly. And she vowed a vow and said, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your servant and remember me and not forget your servant, but will give to your servant a son, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life, and no razor shall touch his head. As she continued praying before the Lord, Eli observed her mouth. Hannah was speaking in her heart, only her lips moved and her voice was not heard. Therefore, Eli took her to be a drunken woman. And Eli said to her, How long will you go on being drunk? Put your wine away from you. But Hannah answered, No, my Lord, I am a woman troubled in spirit. I have drunk neither wine nor strong drink, but I have been pouring out my soul before the Lord. Do not regard your servant as a worthless woman. For all along I have been speaking out of my great anxiety and vexation. Then Eli answered, Go in peace, and the God of Israel grant your petition that you have made to him. And she said, Let your servant find favor in your eyes. Then the woman went her way and ate, and her face was no longer sad. Guys, Hannah had to make a decision. That decision was to get up, and she followed it up with taking her issues to God. There's a lot that we can unpack here, but I want to focus on a third observation. Hannah was a woman with a prayer on her lips. A year ago at the Summit Church, we had this intentional focus on prayer, and we called it, you guessed it, the year of prayer. 
And one of the things that I took from the year of prayer is that prayer is a complete act of faith that ultimately reshapes our lives in such a way that to show us who we are and who God is. And the question is, who are we? We're, we're broken people. We're broken individuals. We're, we're sinners and we're in need of a Savior. We cannot and should not depend on ourselves, but be fully reliant on God. And who is God? He's the one who wants to work in our lives for his glory and our good. So with that in mind, there are three things about her prayer. Hannah prayed like she was desperate. Her prayer is so unique that she has to convince Eli, the priest, that she isn't drunk. (laughs) Think about that. What this tells me is that if you are crying out to God, you must resolve that appearance shouldn't mean anything. In her prayer, she was willing to show how broken and how desperate she was. Is this how you pray? If I'm honest, it's not how I pray. I want to string up the right words. I want people to say, oh, man, that Derek, mm, he sure can pray, right? I want people to think this about me. But here's the kicker. I may be able to fool you guys, but I can't fool God. He knows what I'm struggling with. He knows what's going on in the the depths of my heart. So if he knows that about me, we can assume he knows that about you as well. So family, let's stop pretending and let's be real with our Father. Can I ask you a question? Why is that that we as Christians, especially in the church, where we preach grace, we live our lives as if we never tap into grace? This is, this is what I, I mean by that. We want to show people that we have everything together, that we have everything figured out, that, that we're good, we're, we're okay. But in the reality, that's simply not true. Family, we must be desperate for God because we understand it's out of our need for God. We as Christians are products of grace. We could not save ourselves. When people say that they don't like coming to church because it's full of hypocrites, unfortunately, they're right. We are hypocrites. We are hypocrites. We want people to think that we're good when we aren't. Why do we operate in this way? We as Christians should be the very first ones to tell you just how jacked up we are, but just as quickly tell you how good Jesus is. Guys, there's absolutely nobody here who has it together. Not Dr. Aiken, not your professors, not me, nobody. But that is why we get a chance to shout to the goodness of the Lord. That is why we we cry when we sing, because if it had not been for God's grace, where in the world would we be? Family, amazing grace is still amazing, even when we don't acknowledge it. And if you can't say amen there, you better say ouch. Lord, help us pray like Hannah. When we begin to pray like Hannah, in desperation, out of need, knowing who we are, knowing what's going on inside of us, out of seeing ourselves for who we truly are, barren and in need, we are taking our pain and linking it to a God who wants to be involved in our pain. We know this to be true. How? We look at the content of Hannah's prayer. Hannah's prayer focused on God's commission, not her comfort. Hannah takes her prayer and recognizes God for who he is. She calls God the the Lord of hosts. Hannah's prayer was specifically addressed to the omnipotent deliverer of those in distress. See, the Lord of hosts, it speaks to God being in control of, of armies on armies and at any time could send said armies to rescue. You see, her pain had made her a theologian. No character in Scripture up to this point had ever used this term to address the Lord. 
And in her prayer, she recognizes who the Lord is while at the same time recognizing her position in relationship to him. Three times she referred to herself as what? Your servant, your servant, your servant. What makes this so significant is that she in this moment recognizes that God and his greatness is still a personal God. How do we know that? By what she prays. She says, look on me and what? Remember me. Something is going on in her soul where she is able to recognize that if everything else in my life is going to be barren, my soul cannot be if you remember me. The amount of faith it took to pray a prayer like this. Remember me, God. When everyone else around me sees me as a, as a cultural failure, when everyone sees me as a woman who is, who is barren and can't live up to, to, the, to the hype, all that stuff will be for nothing if you remember me. I'm masking this because I know that you are God who is compassionate and you care for little old me. It's a lot of faith. But she takes it a step further and says that if you provide, then the son will be yours. Now, I remember praying a prayer like this for our little ones with True and Michael. But what we were praying was a, was a Psalm 127 prayer, right? We wanna, want you to give us kids to raise them up to be arrows, send them off for the work of the kingdom, right? This isn't what she's praying here. She, essentially what she is praying is that God would fully and completely own this child without her being able to raise him herself. Her prayer points to what's called as a Nazarite vow. She was saying that her son would, would be a priest. Now in those days, there was only two ways to be a part of the priestly line. You would either have to be born in, in it as, as a Levite, or you would take this vow, this Nazarite vow, which is what she's alluding to when she says no razor will ever be used on his head. This is significant for a couple of reasons. When she makes this vow, she's essentially saying, I'm giving up all my rights as a mother to this child. The Nazarite vow made the, made the person move away from the home. They couldn't be a part of the family. And so she, in this moment, is renouncing everything that would be valuable in having a child to begin with. He would not grow up with her. He would not be available to take care of her in her old age. Hannah is praying for a son, but then laid aside every single benefit that came with having a son. In this moment, we see this shift in perspective take place in Hannah's life. She stops being focused on her and starts to focus on God and his mission. Again, what would it take for us to pray like this, where we recognize who God is, who we are, and then order what we ask in such a way where it's a benefit to God's kingdom and not our own kingdom, where it's a benefit to, to God's commission and not our comfort. This was the content of her prayer. It doesn't end there, though. We see that Hannah's prayer filled her up, even though she was still empty. What happens? It says she went her way, ate her food, and her face was no longer sad. But something is obvious here, though. She's not pregnant. She's not pregnant. She still is without a child. But something in her prayer causes her demeanor to change. That something was that she was able to finally put her trust in something bigger than having a child. She has given up her absolute dependence on having a child for happiness and her purpose. And she walks away satisfied even before she has a child. And if we're honest, this is a struggle for us because of where we put our hope in. Listen, most of our deepest disappointments in life happen because we look for joy in things that can only come from God. You see, what we are looking for is found in Jesus. 
You looking for love? Well, Romans 8, 38 and 39 says that we are reminded that in Christ, in Christ Jesus, we are loved. We're loved by God with an inseparable love. You looking for validation? In Galatians 3, 26, we are reminded that in Christ, we are sons of God through faith. Being a son or daughter of the Most High God should be significantly better than having a son or daughter. Acceptance, in Ephesians 1, 4, we are reminded that in Christ Jesus, you were chosen by God before creation. Feeling alone, in Hebrews 13, 5, 6, we are reminded that he will never leave us or forsake us. So when everyone else turns their back on us, we can know that God is still looking at us and he turns his face to us to cause it to shine upon us with his arms wide open saying, come home. And all of this is made possible because of Jesus Christ and what he's done. The question remains though, how do we get from this never-ending storm of the penitence of our hopelessness to this peace that can only come from him? Well, to answer that, we're going to look a little bit at Hannah's song. And I'm going to close by showing you two things Hannah's story means for us today. Now, for the sake of time, we won't dig into the entire song. But in the next chapter, Hannah sings a song. She says in the first two verses that my heart exalts in the Lord. There's none like you, Lord. We see her delight is in God. She goes on to say, there is no rock like our God. That little verse there is one of the most profound and poetic statements about the majesty of God in the entire Bible. This is a phrase that we can come back to over and over and over again when life is crushing us and we feel like that we have no hope. And what's so absolutely wonderful about this, this profound verse drips from the lips of a woman who society says has no value at all. These two verses communicate the shift in her heart that her joy and her security is in God. That if he answered, he is still good. If he doesn't answer, he is still good. Spoiler alert though, God does answer. Verse 20 says, and in due time Hannah conceived and bore a son and she called his name Samuel. For she said, I have asked for him from the Lord. Guys, this story is great and has a happy ending for sure. But what about you and I? What does it mean for us? Well, like Hannah, we can come to Shiloh year after year after year. We can go to church, we can go to our Bibles every weekend for the rest of our lives. But if we do not get to the point where God is all we need, we will never change. Our desires should change. The things we want should change. If God is not all we need, then it doesn't matter what we get. If God is not all we need, then it literally doesn't matter if we gain the whole world. If God is not all we need, then our lives, no matter how rich, no matter how blessed, how comfortable, will be consumed by this endless desire for something more. If God is not all we need, then our lives will always be filled with need. Listen, relationships are good. Jobs are good. Children are good. Those things aren't bad, but when we order them in such a way where they are more valuable to us than God and who he is, then we are missing the point about the stuff. Those things that take the place of God, and before you know it, they begin to lead to our hopelessness. Think about it. Just look at, at Penina. She had the, the favor of a husband. She had the children. Society looked at her and was pleased with her because of what she could do. And yet she still took out torment on Hannah. What we need to understand is that sin isn't simply just doing bad things. Sin is disordering our loves. When we place our love more on things other than God, we are positioning ourselves in a place of ruin. And this is why this story is so important for us to understand. 
I want you to look at what you wrote down earlier. I want you to take it out and look at it. Your hashtag hopeless moment. From looking at Hannah's story, there are two things that I want you to walk away with today that speaks into your moment. Number one, our desires apart from God feed our hopelessness. We need to identify where we're putting our desires. I mentioned this earlier, but the penitents in our lives show us where we're putting our hope in. When we're disappointed, when we're hurt, when we're, when we're stressed, these feelings show that we're pursuing another God over God. When there's smoke, there's fire. When we begin to, to trace back these feelings of hurt and being let down and how we let it rule our emotions, we will begin to see what we are truly worshiping in our lives. This happens with married couples who place a higher weight on their marriage. They're looking at their spouse to be there, everything. And they will soon begin to see that their spouse is going to let them down. When that happens, their whole world is shattered. This happens when the single person is trying to find love, and when he or she finds it, they are met with unfulfilled desires, unmet affections, because the one they were looking to is completely unfit to be there, everything. Problems of loneliness and insecurity are not cured by the love of other humans, of what people can give you or what you can get. They are only cured by the love of God. Hear me. What is really easy to misinterpret in everything that I'm saying here is that if we are to trust God fully and ask for things long enough like Hannah, then he will move according to what we ask for. Listen, we should be praying to God about hurtful and difficult situations. We should cast our burdens on God because he cares for us. We should with prayer and thanksgiving and supplication make our requests known to God because he cares for us. And when we do that, the peace of God that is beyond comprehension will completely blow us away. It will guard our hearts and our minds. We, we get that. But we should not try to force God to give us what we want just by attempting to have more faith. There are many who will hear what I'm saying today who may never have children, even after years of asking God for one. Many of us will never get rich. Many of us may never get well again from our sicknesses. And by the standards of the world, we may very well die barren. But if we have God, we will have enough. If we have God, we have significance and stability. If we have God, the approval of others is mute. If we have God, we can endure the harshest and most difficult struggles in our lives. If we have God, we will not be hopeless because he is our hope. My question for you today is, do you have God? Some of you are so distraught because you don't know God. And here's the thing, I would be foolish to think that just because we are at a Christian institution that everyone listening to me right now knows Jesus. I pray that I'm wrong, but the gospel is too important for me not to share it with you. My hope today is that you will embrace his forgiveness, accept his love for you, be adopted into the family of God. This is only made possible by you accepting the fact that you are broken, that you are a sinner, that you cannot save yourself. You could not live a perfect life, and Jesus had to come do that for you. He lived the life you could not live. He died the death that you deserve to die, and he rose from the grave showing that he was God enough to save you and rescue you from yourself. And all you have to do is believe. For those of you in this room who are Christians, though, you have placed your faith in Jesus already. What, what about you, right? Because hopelessness doesn't care where it finds its home. 
We know that to be true. As Christians, we need to fight to remember that in the midst of our hopelessness, God remembers us. In the midst of our hopelessness, God remembers us. You need to hear that. The reason why is because life is hard. Ministry makes it harder. We get a front row seat as, as those pursuing ministry and going into ministry. We get a front row seat to see God do miraculous things. But we also get a front row seat to see the depravity of man. And on top of all that, you have to wrestle with your own sin, your own things, your own inner demons, if you will. You will wrestle with physical ailments, and some of you will wrestle with mental ones as well. Again, I said this earlier, I was going to preach on something entirely different today, but in light of what happened with Pastor Jared Wilson just a few weeks ago, I felt led to preach on this. And the reason why is because the feeling of hopelessness is real. It's very real. Whether it's brought on by your own sin or sin done to you, whether it be disappointments that we're going to face, it is real and ever-present. And in those moments, we may very well feel abandoned by God. That's our natural tendency to think that he's left us. But even if that's our natural tendency, that does not mean that it's true. You see, even when we are hopeless, God is faithful. You see, the gospel is that Jesus experienced hopelessness so that we wouldn't have to. Jesus died broken and barren. No family, no children, his friends abandoned him, and even his heavenly father turned away. If anyone was ever hopeless, if anyone had a hashtag hopeless moment, it was Jesus at that very moment. And he did that so that we would know in our hopeless moments that we are not suffering alone. His death on the cross, it took our barrenness, it took our brokenness and our hopelessness. Listen, I know what some of you want to hear today. You want to hear that in the midst of our hopelessness that if we hang on, that God is going to make it all better. But that's not what I said. Listen closely. When we are hopeless, God remembers us. He is near. He hears. And his heart breaks with ours. I'm not trying to compare my suffering with anyone else's. We all have different roads to walk, but I've experienced heartache in my life. And in the moments of pain, you know what's helped? It's not always that God is going to bring good from this situation. But it's kept my feet moving through the depths of the dark valley is this. That God, my heavenly Father, was and is walking that road with me. Suffering tells us that life is hopeless, that we are hopeless, that we are completely alone. But here's what I know. The cross of Jesus proves that no matter how dark my valley is, I am never alone. No matter how broken or sinful my life has been, I am never beyond his hope. And whether I see his deliverance in the land of the living, or I have to wait until his glorious return, I can shout just like Job, I know that my Redeemer lives. That is good news for us. This is grace to us. And we didn't deserve any of it. That's why I said earlier, that's why grace is amazing. We will constantly pursue after other things in place of God, but the gospel reminds us that he will never stop pursuing us. Why? Because he is a God that remembers us. 
He remembered in the garden that sin affected Adam and Eve and it passed on to us. He remembered in Genesis 12 that he made this covenant with Abraham that he was going to make a new family of people who are on the outside looking in. He remembers, like it says in Psalm, that we are dusty little flowers, that if the wind comes, it's going to knock us down. He remembers these things. He remembers us because there's a high priest praying for us. And you see, unlike Eli, the high priest isn't sitting at a doorpost looking at us like we're crazy. No, he is looking at us, sitting at the right hand of the Father, interceding for you and me and for anyone who would place their faith in him and say that I am hopeless, but in Jesus' name, be my hope. And he will do it. When he does, in those moments where we fail, in the moments where we feel that we are without hope, Jesus is talking to our Father on our behalf, and God remembers us. In your hopeless moments, you need to hear this. God will not abandon us in our time of need. He is working all things for good. Yes, if we have placed our faith in the cross, we can rest assured that we are not and never will be or can be forgotten. Let that give us hope in the midst of our hopeless moments, now and forevermore. Amen, family? Amen. God, you're good. We thank you that we have a chance to see who you are and how you interact with us. God, we desperately need you. Let us remember that ultimately you remember us. God, life is hard. Give us grace to be sustained through your power of your Holy Spirit. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this podcast. Consider giving to Southeastern Seminary online or visiting us for a preview day. For information on how to give or sign up for a preview day, visit scbts.edu.